Hey everyone, welcome back to Et Al, a qualitative research podcast by two PhD students. Today I am flying solo once more without MacArthur to bring you another interview, this time with Dr. Chris McBain-Rigg, a medical anthropologist at James Cook University. We met at the Australian Anthropology Conference last year, where I was very clunkily presenting some of my preliminary PhD findings, and we immediately hit it off, um, talking about our shared interests and uh, also shared grievances with some of the excesses of anthropology. Um, I'll let her introduce herself. And once again, I found this a really valuable conversation, getting to talk to a real-life anthropologist about what that field actually is and what it means to be an anthropologist. If you've been enjoying the show, you can connect with us on Twitter at edalpodcast or send us an email at the best email address in the world, edal.phdpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, thanks guys. Enjoy the show. Okay, and we are here with Dr. Chris McBain-Rigg. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Sam. <laughs> uh, cool name, by the way. <laughs> thanks. The hyphen really works for me, mm. I think. Yeah, Sounds yeah. like a very rich name. I it does, doesn't it? Like. Yeah. Like an oil really tycoon <laughs> or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like an, an industrialist. Yeah. I, um, it was an interesting choice, right? Because, um, mm-hmm. of course, McBain's my, my maiden name. And... Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to keep that uh, mainly to honour my grandfather. Um, and then I kind of thought, oh, it might be a little bit much to leave my husband off. So <laughs> I just tacked it on the end. It's cool. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, it's two strong names. Thank you very much. Indeed. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. Well done. On <laughs> now, the internet tells me, and stop me yep. if I go wrong here, that mm. you are a medical anthropologist. Mm-hmm. at the College of Public Health, Medical and Vet Science, yes. which is in the Anton Brynell Research Centre for Health System Strengthening, yes, which correct. is in the Australian <laughs> Institute of Tropical Health and Medicine, yes. which is a part of James Cook University. Well done. That's, it's kind quite a, a long chain of being, but yeah, yeah. that's pretty much us. Um, kind of a Russian doll you got going on yeah. there. <laughs> Uh, Much like the name, if I can keep on going. I'll, yeah, make yeah. everything as long as possible. Um, right. So I guess that's what it, it says on paper, but I'd like to hear from you. How do you describe what it is you do and how you're spending your time at the moment? Okay, uh, so yeah, look, I, I'm a lecturer in public health uh, in the College of Public Health, Medical and Veterinary Sciences at James Cook University. Um, I spent most of my professional growing up years um, in Mount Isa, um, at the Centre for Rural and Remote Health. And um, so I had done my undergraduate degree in anthropology at James Cook mm-hmm. uh, and was looking for the next step. And, you know, a contract came up at Micro. Well, it was Micro then. It's now just the Centre for Rural and Remote Health um, because they have many more sites than they used to. Um, so, yep, finished the degree, was looking for an opportunity. They were just fortunately looking for a medical anthropologist and I turned up and... Um, yeah, the rest is kind of history from there. I spent eight years living and working in Mount Isa as a health researcher. Um, and for anyone who's unclear, this is that a town that's in western Queensland? Yes, yeah, that's right, out. kind of northwest Queensland and um, mm-hmm. uh, very close to the desert, so very hot, very dry, very mm-hmm. remote. Um, a lot of mining, uh, I understand. Yeah, mining is the major industry uh, mm-hmm. in Mount Isa, closely followed by pastoralism. 
Um, so, yeah, we really are doing that whole Outback experience thing. Um, out there, great town. I absolutely adored it. Would go back in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Um, and had the, the great fortune of meeting some really amazing people um, that walked me through my PhD, which was about looking at um, access barriers to healthcare for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people living in Mount Isa um, as part of a kind of broader conversation about Aboriginal health issues at the time. Yeah, so I did that for a long while. Then I did some mixed methods work in a postdoc about social accountability and med students at JCU. And um, then I kind of moved on. I've, I've done a lot of work in um, work health and safety um, research regarding um, quad bike safety and different agricultural and fisheries industries issues. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and most recently moved into skin disease and people's perceptions and attitudes towards that, how they seek help, that kind of stuff, right. uh, as part of a partnership with a group in Solomon Islands as well. So it was okay. very interesting. <laughs> yeah, I'm very interested in, in some of these subjects that you've you've mm. mentioned because I think they are, some of them are areas which, you know, to the, to the, un, to the untrained ear, which is how I definitely still class myself, they're not... Intuit, they don't intuitively go with anthropological methods. Yeah, like true. Anthropology and quad bikes don't sort of link in, <laughs> in, a, in a lot of people's minds. So I definitely want to get into that. Sure. Um, I was wondering what uh, sort of going back a little bit to the to the beginning. What drew you towards anthropology in the oh. in the first place? <laughs> what was the were there romantic ideals or was it something different then to what it is now? Is it as it? Um, are you so, doing what you imagined? I, uh, well, yeah. Um, so I actually came to uni hoping to study history um, mm-hmm. and got into some of the history classes and went, oh, this is maybe a little drier than I expected. Mm-hmm. Um, it was all which, old, isn't it? Well, it was a shame, yes. right? Um, because it was one of my passions at school. You know, I was, yeah. I was right. I did ancient and modern history as my subjects, you know. So I was right mm-hmm. into this and I really thought that was my future. Um and then I kind of, you know, we had to pick a range of topics, right? Because I did a Bachelor of Social Science. They're non-existent virtually now, right. I think, uh, mm. at most Australian universities and um, for lots of reasons. But, <laughs> but as part of that degree, there was quite a variety of things that you could choose to explore, particularly early on. Um, and so, you know, started doing some psychology classes and anthro was part of the mix and... Uh, we had sociology, archaeology classes. You know, I tried all of those things. And um, archaeology kind of didn't work out because I would be the only person on a dig that didn't find anything. So I kind of went, maybe this is not for you. Yeah? You actually went um, out on digs. Yeah, we had little ones that we would do at the back end of the uni. Oh, um, right. So they set up like these little pits and we have, you know, you draw out the grid and you, you know, what's, what's uncovered in this part? And, oh, do a oh. sketch of it. You know, all those really cool things. Were other people um, finding stuff? Yeah. Just out the back of the uni. Yeah, I mean these were. I mean it was set up. It was set up. Oh, okay, wrong. right. I just always picked the wrong. Part I thought they just picked a field. Yeah. <laughs> and gone for it, and like, oh, you never oh. guess. Yeah, look, look at this. No. Yeah. Okay, no, fair enough. No, not quite, not quite that uh, organic, mm-hmm. but um, <laughs> um, yeah, I would never find anything. Um, my drawing <laughs> was terrible. My measurement is terrible. So I went, you know what? This is probably not for you. That's a shame. Must be some uh, archaeologists who just don't find anything. <laughs> yeah, it makes me wonder, right? Just have a real and dry spell for a couple of years. So. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, how does that make you feel? 
Because I know how it would make me feel. I know how it did make me feel. You and that was only like in like a couple of semesters. Yeah. <laughs> so, nope. Um, but I really um, adore their methodologies. I love the things that they do and what they find and how they make sense of the past and what they bring to contemporary conversations about mm. our future, right? Um, so, I, you know, all of the disciplines that I kind of touched in on, I quite liked. But mm. Anthro really grabbed me. I've read some classifications where people class archaeology as a like, domain of anthropology. Right. Would you, would you see it that way? Like, no, there's different... Yeah, look, I mean... It's all a bit blurry. Yeah, it is a bit blurry. Um, I mean, in the sense that we're talking about human culture, I think, yeah. Um, and I think um, probably more so in um, American contexts, um, I, I tend to see that, that distinction being made. Um, sorry. Um, but in Australia, I don't know. I mean, I kind of see us as sitting alongside each other and helping each other out. Cultural archaeologists, I can see the, the crossover. You know, so we've had um, many cultural archaeologists through the years, but, you know, one of the ones that we had at, at James Cook that was an amazing woman was Shelley Greer. Um, mm -hmm. And Shelley retired a few years ago, but she was absolutely remarkable at bringing uh, those worlds together. Um, worked very closely with Dr. Rosita Henry, you know, so there was there was some really great partnerships that we were fostering here around that um, that sense of continuity through time that we could all bring together. Um, we taught together, you know, there was, um, we have a, a subject that's, a, it's called um, uh, Australia Through Time and Place. And it was kind of this um, marriage of Shelley and Rosita's work um, that we were then teaching to our social science students. And um, it was a great subject because it really did show that sense of continuity through time. It was beautiful. So they're um, sort of distinct but complementary. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, they're 110% our friends <laughs> and our cousins and, you know, on occasion our brothers and sisters. So I think, um, yeah, I think it's a really close relationship but maybe not in the ways that um, maybe you see in the States, I think. Right. Um, yeah, so... Um, they always do stuff different over there. So. Well, that's right, and it's important. <laughs> someone's got someone's mm. to do it different. Um, yeah, I think it's just a... a function of our traditions really okay. um but yeah so uh i can't remember where else your question went so you didn't find anything on the dig i didn't find anything else anthro grabbed me that's right um so and it did i think it really grabbed me because it resonated very strongly with my own family history with my own personal um journey of trying to figure out who i was at the time um because it was the first time i'd really started to understand that there were families in the world or ways of being in the world that were more like what I was used to but weren't necessarily the same as friends of the same culture, right? So, you know, I um, uh, spent a lot of my young life with my grandparents. You know, I grew up with my right. grandparents and, and my mum uh, and it was just all a little bit different to what my friends kind of had and what they were going through and I always felt that little bit different. Um, but to end up in an anthropology class and see kinship kind of open up, right? Um, and that there's all these different models and that it's, it's okay to be different <laughs> was, was a real uh, turning point for me, I think, that got me attached. Um, I, I can't lie. I like the exotic side of, of what we do um, and certainly mm -hmm. the stuff that we get exposed to early in anthropology, but I really, really enjoy it for how it digs away at our problems and tries to find solutions that are genuinely human. Yeah? 
um, it allows us that opportunity to look through time and, and consider history and archaeology and all of the, the things that psychology has brought us and what sociology has brought us and meld it together to talk about uh, the human being in a way that I think is really unique and important. Um, and I can see a real future for, you know, as we're moving, uh, you know, there's been all those debates that we've had over the years around the value of arts and the value of, you know, disciplines like ours. And um, you know, I think there is a, a, a big future ahead for us um, in a world that's full of AI and robots and <laughs> all of the things that I absolutely love mm. as well um, because we can bring that, that humanity back. So it's got a, it sounds like it's got a kind of multidisciplinary nature in terms of the methods of anthropology mm. in a kind of very applied, I guess as you said, human way, mm. draw together strands from all the from lots of different like yeah. would you say more empirical or quantitative methods? Yeah, and of, disciplines. Absolutely. Yeah. And and is it sort of building building all of those into something that I'm not sure what it is I'm trying to say. I think that the thing <laughs> about it being more being the solutions being human. Mm. I think there's that's I identify with that a lot but I think it's quite a, a, a dense idea like this it's quite hard to unpack what it is we're sort of saying by that yeah Do you well have any that's ideas what that that's a good contains? point um, it is a really dense idea right and um, I think partly the reason that that drives me or the reason that I think that probably comes from the kind of work that I've done right so um, I didn't really follow what I think is a tradition <laughs> think is a traditional mm. anthropological track right um you know i kind of uh got my degree and like i said went out and worked for the center for rural and remote health and out there um you know people saw me as a health researcher and predominantly it was the qualitative aspects of my training that were really really useful right i added to a yeah. team of people who were really great at numbers um and i brought with me all of the theoretical backgrounds and the, and the big human concepts, you know, right down to really the simple bits, the myths, the, the legends, the things that we talk about, how we make sense of our world. Um, all of that stuff came along with what I could do. And I think it genuinely made it easier to employ the methods that I've needed to do the work I've done, you know, to, to really facilitate good focus groups or to really... Um, draw an interview out in the ways that you, you you hope for, you really hope for when you're doing interviews. Because you've got that kind of, that background, that basis, um, I, I think it genuinely makes it easier to connect with people. Um, mm. And so when we're talking through really messy, complex and very human problems, things like housing conditions and health or uh, the ways that people navigate or don't through healthcare systems, um, having that sense of that, that really strong grounding in what it is to be human and the ways that we've kind of conceptualised that over time, I think it actually genuinely helps um, uh, when you're talking with people. Um, and I think that as we kind of move in directions, we, we've been moving in a, uh, you know, a technological world for a long time now, right? It's been a long time. It's, it seems like it's faster now. Right, seems like it's accelerated or sped up, but realistically, yeah. we've been evolving our technology over 
hundreds of years, right? So more. <laughs> um, as we're moving to a point where, you know, this is – we're getting serious about things like AI and we're getting serious about things like, you know, uh, robots are going to take our jobs, you know, and all of that kind of anxiety that's being driven by technological change. I, th I genuinely think that the next wave is bringing the human back, um, that it, it goes beyond that technology um, to really thinking about our place in it, around it, um, and who's going to care? You know, who's going to care for these systems? Who's going to care for the robots that we've put to work? Um, is that a part of what we need to consider as, as humans, as anthropologists, and as public health professionals? You know, I mean, um, yeah, that's that's something that I'm kind of I've been playing with for a long while. Okay. Um, it moves it in a very odd direction, probably, and like you say, not like what we would usually expect in anthropology at all, but. I'm fascinated. And I know there are others out there that are doing the same mm. things. You know, Genevieve Bell's work, um, Catherine Robinson. You know, there's been so many people that have been trying to weave their way through that world. Um, so I'm just kind of coming along for the ride, I guess. <laughs> I suppose it is part of it that we've unusual. We've ended up in, an, in a difficult situation where we want to value the things that are that we consider human, mm -hmm. but we're also in an environment where I guess things that by that distinction we might call inhuman or non-human, so this sort of hyper-rationalist quantification, data-driven way of interpreting the world mm. has brought a lot of benefits to people as well as a, having a lot of uh, limitations. So Absolutely. that's the way in which this could represent that sort of... the the next step or the sec, you know, the other shoe dropping is mm. this has brought us all of these things. Now it's time to observe the way in which the non-human, while not, you know, entirely mm. bad or wrong or unuseful, yeah. is costing us things as well. And so we need to go back to, not back, we need mm. to transition to this other set of tools we've had the whole time. Yes. Yeah, look, I, I really do think that that's where we need to head next. And um, and I think anthropologists are beautifully placed to be able to do that um, because part of our training is about creating that opportunity for continuity. You know, it's not just about catching butterflies anymore. Um, recording these things and if understanding. Only. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and weaving baskets. Um, those, uh, that, that kind of recording, that kind of watching in that kind of being a part of people's lives has been really important to us for, for since the beginning of this one, right? And I think it continues to be really, really important, partly because there are so many people who are being left behind um, in that wave of technological change. Um, we see it in Australia. We see it in rural and remote Australia in particular. Um, we see it all over the world, particularly among uh, vulnerable or underserved populations, right? And so, you know, it's, it's really important that we keep an eye on the idea that the things that we might take for granted in major cities or in places where technological change is the everyday, um, and people are, I think uh, there's a, a lot to be said for the ways that humans reach back in times of rapid change. Um, there's some great work on that too, and it's completely slipped my mind who I wanted to talk about. But, um, you know, that, that sense of um, just perpetual change um, that we face now um, 
I don't know. I've been thinking lately about whether or not it's anything like what someone might have gone through at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. You know, like mm. how much how much rapid change were they facing as well? And, and what was the, the nature of that change and the character of that change and how did people cope with it? Did they cope? Um, you know, there's the, yeah, all of those kinds of bits and pieces of floating in and out. I'm just <laughs> still trying to make sense of. Yeah. But when I think you're working like, in public health, hmm. you see the impacts that some of these technologies can have on people's lives and, and some of the beauty and some of the drama that that brings and um, particularly the drama of people being left behind. That's a, that's a really critical moment that we need to make sure we address um, so that we keep the humans in there, right? Um, but that, yeah, sometimes there are these things that we can do that we've always done and that we know work for us um, that, that we just need to keep keep rolling we need to keep them going and so that transmission of culture transmission of knowledge is still so critically important um to the human endeavor i guess <laughs> and you see anthropology as a vector through which those things are transmitted and continued yeah i do um mm. I, well i think it's a tool to help you know um i've always kind of thought that what we do brings um value to populations uh, that need us or that want us there, right? Um, I'm not one of these anthropologists who thinks you should just do something for something's sake um, or just because we want to record something or preserve something. I genuinely think that the work that we do needs to be done with communities, not for them or onto them. And so, yeah, I, I think that we are a valuable part of a, a much bigger project, yeah, in terms of capturing human experience. Now, the discussion about whether anthropology should be done for people or onto them or um you or you know for the for the sake of it i think yeah. this was very much the substance of our conversation when we met <laughs> last year yeah um and so i wanted to touch on that as well actually backing up a little bit you said you didn't have the traditional anthrop anthropology career path what is yeah. the traditional anthropology <laughs> career path because this is one of the things I was hoping to get a yeah. better understanding of today because for myself as someone who's come into mm. qualitative health research so I think very much similar to what you um, yeah. found yourself in I've sort of come from a cl clinical perspective but then there's qualitative methods and then I've found ethnography and so I'm using that and I'm sort of sliding sideways into the social sciences and yeah. desperately trying to educate myself at the last minute about all of this <laughs> stuff so that I can sound like I know what I'm talking about in my thesis. Awesome. So I do wonder to myself often, what is the way I should have gone through <laughs> learning all of this material and conducting this kind of research? Am I doing anthropology? Is this in any way? Or is there something else going on over there because when I go to an anthropology conference, it sounds kind of similar, yeah. but often I, but a lot of times I can't understand what they're talking about at all. So there must be <laughs> other things I'm I'm missing. So as as someone with a emic perspective, yep. that's the right one, isn't it? Right. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, <laughs> for people in that field, what is the tra traditional path, and what is it that you know? Mm. You're meant to be doing. What am I meant to be doing? It's a really good question, right? Um, and it's one of the things that I've always struggled with too because 
you know, so, okay. So I came to university and wanted to study history. Didn't study history, you went to anthropology, right? And it became my major um, uh, in what was essentially a research skills-based degree. So ideally, in a Bachelor of Social Science, you were coming out research-ready, right? So there was research training in there around methods and how to go and collect and practising those kinds of things um, and really digging into what it meant to do any one of those methods, right? Um, and as an anthropology student, there was a real emphasis on being an anthropologist first, right? I, I remember over and over having my mentors repeat, you're an anthropologist first, you're an anthropologist first, because I think they could probably see me veering off <laughs> into the distance um, because of the kinds of things I was interested in. Um, having towards said that... Put, veering off towards putting that subject first? Yeah, and... and um, Particularly, yeah, health uh, and health-related issues, right? So there's, um, well, there's two ways it could have gone. So <laughs> by the time I got to the honours year, right, which is the traditional trajectory, I think, you come through, you go, okay, anthro is going to be my major, and then you follow all of the anthropology subjects, right, and that becomes a really heavy part of your degree. Um, you might branch out a little bit to some other disciplines here and there. Uh, which I did. Um, I grabbed hold of medical sociology on the way and our medical anthropology subjects and, you know, like, did those bits and pieces. Um, and I could see a couple of places I was headed. One <laughs> was was to, to be working with a Dayak in Borneo. Uh, one was a witchcraft and sorcery. Like, I was all about that for a long time. Um, <laughs> and I still uh -huh. I love that, right? Um, and the other was health. And at the end of it all, my fascination really was with health and healthcare systems um, and the ways that people differently conceptualise their bodies um, and how that influences the ways that they are in the world. Um, you know, all of those kinds of bits and pieces really struck at me. I like the theories that came along with critical medical anthropology, you know, the Hans Bears and the Merrill Singers and, the, you know, all of that mm. kind of stuff. Brian Turner's stuff from medical sociology really grabbed my uh, attention. There was a lot of that kind of work going on. Um, Shepard Hughes um, and Margaret Locke's work, their stuff. It was my – it blew my mind. And so – You mainly did to provide a reading list. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, uh yeah, I mean, Death Without Weeping changed everything for me when I read that text, um, and that's Nancy Shepard Hughes. Um, I was hooked. That was it. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to, to move down that path of trying to unpack the political uh, uncertainties and the structural violence that we see in population groups that really suffer um, with their health. Um, so, you know, I mean, that's kind of where that ended up. Um, and then I also had um, a desire, you know, as a, a non-Indigenous Australian woman to better understand the history and context of health in my own country um, and particularly the ways that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have experienced their health through time. Um, and so that, that was what I ended up falling upon for my honours thesis and then kind of flew into the, the PhD as well. Um, would it have been more traditional to go to Borneo or study? <laughs> I kind of feel like or? it would have been, right? <laughs> um, 
Yeah. Uh, Sounds more an- anthropology Yeah, well, it kind of You could wear a khaki right? vest or something. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I think that's why they kept saying to me, you're an anthropologist first, yeah? Um, because mm. those would have been more traditional topics um, to go and look at witchcraft and sorcery and, you know, um, understanding bits and pieces of that. and You know, as fascinating as that was. Hmm. That's, that's part of it I'm not really under understanding because to say you're an anthropologist first. Because well, one of the things I've tried to get my head around, you know, in isolation, just trying to read about all this stuff is... Mm. In what way anthropology is a field, and in what way it is, what what ways it is a method? Yeah, right. Because I came across ethnography as a health research method, and so was reading a whole bunch about that. Yes. And then whenever I came upon anthropology, I was trying to find the distinct because ethnography isn't a field; it's a method to it's a method that's to right. approach certain problem. Yeah. And so I couldn't understand how anthropology could be. It's a field of in- inquiry yeah because also when it is described as a field it the terms are are the 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 field is is people it's humans yeah. <laughs> isn't that a little bit That's right. broad to be it is a bit useful <laughs> so do you view it as a, as a field and and what do you say? obviously it's it's very diverse but mm. and what do you say it's focused on or when they say you're an anthropologist first, are there are there certain subjects they want you to focus on, or are there certain methods you want to, want you to use, or is it both? I think it's a bit of both. Um, so there was in part the expectation that the methodologies that I would really employ and the methods that I would be following would be ethnographic, that they would be ethnography, right? Uh, in that sense of going to a field, staying there for a long time, immersing yourself in people's lives, learning about you know. Uh, cultural issues and and you know whatever else it was you wanted to kind of focus on, and then coming back, so taking yourself out of the field, um, and writing that up and getting your PhD and then continuing down a tenure track, and it's a very different um, thing. I well, in some ways, it's different to what I did. It's different for for anthropologists to go straight into native title work, um, and often they feel a little bit isolated from the broader intellectual group um, because, again, there's this split around um, the value of applied applied work um, mm. and what it really represents to this bigger anthropological um, uh, way of thinking about the world and particularly what it is to be human, right? So when, when my supervisors and my mentors were saying to me, you're an anthropologist first, I actually think that it was, it was about the the way of being in the world that you that you employ when you're an anthropologist right so i mean the stuff that they were teaching me like i said on a number of occasions absolutely blew my mind right it's why it really uh, resonated with my with my own way of being right um and made it better so i've i kind of see anthropology as a way of life it sounds really naff (laughs) But, but it's it's for me it's it's like my it, that's where my fundamental belief system sits, right? Yeah. Um, and you can trace its history, you can trace its origins, you can you can move through and see the ways that life has interchanged with the sets of ideas and the ways that I've been able to better understand the world because of what I have, right? Mm-hmm. That's my training. What they were really keen to make sure I did was keep that um, sense of identity as an anthropologist because they could see me moving into a health world. 
and having been in that world for a while now, and I love it. I mean, it's, it's a really comfortable place for me because it makes sense. Um, if health is the basis of everything <laughs> and anthropology yeah. is the basis of everything as well, I can marry those two together really nicely. Mm. Um, uh, I just – I think they were concerned that I might get um, torn away from my anthropological roots because the ways that we research in health, they're often faster. Um, I don't believe that there are any quick and dirty uh, kind of ways that we do things. I, I know we can, but we don't. <laughs> we shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, never have. Never have. Yeah, right? No. Never, never, never. Um, <laughs> but I think um, there was this sense of um, if I don't retain that connection back to my fundamental, my kind of core philosophy, um, that I would lose it. And that my work would just kind of become like everybody else's in health. And that it doesn't make it distinctive. Um, so I don't think in their minds that anthropology as a field was really limited to just going off, finding your tribe, collecting that, coming back kind of stuff. Um, they were very supportive of me doing the kind of work I wanted to do. But there was still always this tension around... You know, just remember, you're an anthropologist first. There's ways that you do things and ways that you critically inquire about the world that are different. It's different, right? And you need to do that, and it's really important. You know, that it was that kind of um, that kind of feeling. Um, and there have been moments where I have to really remind myself um, that, yeah, I am an anthropologist first, and that's the value that I bring to healthcare teams um, and to working with you know, the public health team that I've got here. Um, we all come from a lot of different backgrounds. And I actually think the value of that is that we bring that with us to the work that we're doing together. Um, so, you know, you kind of talked about the quad bike stuff before. Um, yeah, I mean, I would never have expected to get into that either. Um, <laughs> but it's a human experience. And one of the things that we were really concerned about was the level of injury and, and death that was occurring um, as a result of... Um, Supposed misuse of these vehicles, right? And um, sitting and talking with agriculturalists, you know, uh, lots of different people that use quad bikes, people who sell quad bikes, people who make quad bikes. We, we did a whole range of different um, uh, interviews and um, focus groups for that. Um, it really brought home the kinds of things that impact on the human experience of this. So, you know, things like the near-miss stories, were the most fascinating for me, right? The stories that end with a, yeah, so it could have been so much worse than it was, um, were, were the moments for me that were really interesting and intense. People could, could talk about the ways that they avoided <laughs> the outcomes that we were really concerned about, you know. Um, or, and, and at the same time as telling a story about someone who didn't. Um, so being able to kind of sit alongside that kind of very straight up and down, you know, I mean, it sounds like a very straight up and down health structured focus group. How do you use it? When do you use it? What do you use it for? Da, 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 right? And these beautiful stories and narratives that would come along with it was the really human side of the data that we had. And so that's where, um, you know, the team was using my expertise then to sit and think about, okay, well, well, then what's the culture of people who are working in these fields? What's the culture of people... Who are, who are selling these vehicles and how they kind of feel about safety aspects of it. You know, it was, um, 
like I say, not somewhere I thought I'd ever go, but I'm really glad I did um, because it brings it brought me to an entirely different way of thinking about our interactions with those kinds of technologies, uh, the things that people do and don't do to keep themselves safe um, and why. Um, it was a really fascinating kind of journey. Um, so I think, yeah, anthropology is a field. Anthropology is a, a method. Ethnography is really our method, right? The ethnology is the way that we capture that, right? Um, that's the way of being when we're doing ethnography, right? <laughs> um, and, and I think anthropology is that bigger, broader field of, of uh, philosophy and inquiry. Um, it, it brings the nature to our work, right? It brings the, the flavour, I guess, to the work that we do. Because like you say, you can be a nurse and employ ethnography or ethnographic methods to collect data about hospital settings or healthcare settings, or, you know. And it's a really useful piece, right? Um, that sense of participant observation, of being there, seeing it happen, talking to people about their experiences and then seeing what happens alongside that is so powerful. Um, and I, I think that work often digs away at these bigger human issues, the bigger human experiences that the anthropological project is all about. So, yeah, I don't know if that really answers your question. But uh, <laughs> I think... Anthropology informs our method, right? It's a, it's a way of orienting ourselves in our world. Um, and then the ways that we choose to collect information in the field take different forms. Um, you know, I do a lot more focus groups and interviews these days than I do that, that strong, solid, ethnographic, long-term work, right? Um, I probably use more rapid ethnographic techniques now than I would have ever employed in what I see as a more traditional route of doing anthropology, of being in a university, getting your grants, going out, doing your studies, coming back, writing them up, right? Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that applied nature of, of what I do makes it that bit different. Um, and I think that's kind of the same for the native title anthropologists. They've really um, faced some interesting struggles within the bigger, broader group to feel a part of what we're doing um, because of its applied nature sounds like in a way anthropology is kind of like a lens through which to look at the same data that say other people on the team are looking at so yeah. when you're in those team research positions and you're the anthropologist mm -hmm. you can be all looking at the same thing or looking at the same ethnographic data but mm -hmm. an anthropological perspective on that same data is attending to different things like the cultural aspects and the nature of the social interactions and those sorts of things yes and so is it, it kind of like a a, the, a theoretical background and a theoretical framework that you're you're working from and that's what makes it anthropology yeah i think so um certainly for me that's how it works um maybe and i am doing anthropology yeah <laughs> Certainly for me, that's how it works. And I think, um, you know, health disciplines have, a, have an interesting way of dealing with anthropology um, and I think have over many years of probably hard-won <laughs> academic arguments, um, anthropology really does show its value in healthcare research. Um, 
and has done for a long while. Um, we hold our own pretty well uh, in clinical conversations even because it is that opportunity to step back into our own way of being in the world and go, okay, all right, I see you for exactly what you're doing there and the clinical work that you're doing and the, and the ways that you think about human beings right? and how you treat their, their illnesses right? and their diseases. But have you thought about the fact that, you know, people need hands-on the body when someone dies? Have you thought about, you know, and that these are the small but meaningful moments in people's lives that can make a big difference to health <laughs> outcomes, right? We saw it with Ebola, mm. seen, we're seeing it now in coronavirus. Um, it's, uh, it's a really important aspect to think about. I remember um, we were doing some training. It was uh, an early career researchers thing. Um, and we had to get together in groups. And our groups ended up being very multidisciplinary. And we were uh, given like a problem that we had to, to think about as a team. Um, and ours was uh, the transmission of um, uh, Japanese encephalitis in the Torres Strait region, right? Um, and, you know, there was – I had a doctor on the team, I had a physio on the team, and I had a fish scientist. I'm pretty sure that's not what he calls himself, but he was in the <laughs> fish, right? <laughs> really But we cool. know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, you know what I mean. Fish scientists kind of covers yeah. a whole range of things. <laughs> I mean, um, he's not he's not not a fish scientist. Well, that's right, that's right, and he's not a fish, so that's important <laughs> to note too. Um, <laughs> um, uh, I was the only woman on the team, which was <laughs> really, you know, mm-hmm. I think it mattered at the at the time. I love these guys; they were so great to work with. Um, but there was that very traditional way of thinking about how you stop disease from spreading. It was okay. So we've got to put in place, you know, we've got travel bans, people can't move between here and here and that kind of stuff, right? I'm sitting back and I'm hearing it all and going, yeah, okay, they're all solid ideas. We've got some great evidence behind them, that's cool. But I've never seen a human being not move uh, just because you said don't move, right? Um, if you put a barrier up, people will find a way around it. There's, there's like a million workarounds that humans have come up with over the years and it's fascinating, right? Um, they're the moments that I really – it's kind of perverse joy that comes from those moments because I sit there and I go, wow, humans are just the most remarkable creatures for being able to come up with solutions to a problem that, you know, I mean, ultimately, here's your solution. Nah, I don't like it. I'm going to go around it. Mm. <laughs> you know? Finding um, ways to subvert the solutions oh, that other people have constructed. Absolutely, yeah, and, and they're my moments of kind of joy, even though it's not always a good thing. <laughs> But I find it really joyful that, that this is a thing that we do, right? Yeah. Um, well, there's something very human about it. It, it is, our, right? That, that thing that it's sort of <laughs> non, non-rational, non-logical, yeah. but That's right. understandable and powerful, sort of <laughs> powerful in its organic nature, those sorts yeah. of processes. Exactly, right? Um, and, and to the health system's chagrin. I mean, the things yeah. that people will do, right? So I kind of I talked to the guys and I said, you know, is there any way that you know of that we could actually facilitate safe movement? Is there stuff that we can do, teach, give to people that if they're going to move? Because at the time that we were, you know, in our fake kind of problem issue thing that we had to mm-hmm. solve. Simulation. There was a, yes, fantastic simulation. <laughs> in 
our simulation, we were kind of, you know, told that this was happening at a time where usually there's quite a bit of traffic going backwards and forwards from PNG to the mainland of Australia and through the Torres, right? So, okay, cool. I'm going, quite honestly, that movement's probably really important to people. And the chances that you're going to capture 100% of people going, no, I'm not going to move, um, I'll, I'll just stay because, you know, the mosquitoes, it's really important. Um, they, is there any way that we can actually make that movement safer, right? If they're going to do it anyway, mm -hmm. let's just make it safe. It's a bit of harm reduction. I was about of, to say, yeah. <laughs> so you can see the health stuff coming through for me too because um, I'm very much of that bent, right? Harm reduction. Um, and so then that opened up a whole other conversation about, well, okay, let's not, let's, let's think about the ways that we restrict that movement, sure. But if we can't, what can we do? Um, if the movement is the thing that is more important to people, then maybe we need to ha harness that as a, as a resource rather than, than see it as a, a burden or a problem. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it just kind of opened up a conversation that the guys hadn't really thought about. And from their disciplinary perspectives and backgrounds and amazing training, like amazing, um, it, was a, it was a different way of seeing what that movement was. The movement no longer became pathological. It became something we could use um, to create health rather than to, you know, see it as a burden deal. So, you know, I think it's, it's just that... <laughs> I don't want to say that anthropology is a bit off um, but, because that's not what I mean. But our perspectives are, are just slightly different to others um, and I think can bring some really interesting and valuable stuff to the conversation um, rather than it being a purely, you know, clinical moment. Um, we could turn it into something more than that and we could do preventative work as well as education as well as that clinical uh, endeavour by harnessing what people do and what they value. Um, yeah. Yeah. All, so, all those things that aren't accessible to a sort of epidemiological, bureaucratic yeah. approach. Yeah, they might not always be there, right? Um, uh, just having that bit of insight into what that movement means and how significant it is, um, and the ways that people value it, is not the kind of stuff that you get trained in uh, as a GP or as a you know, or sometimes as a public health specialist. Um, uh, increasingly, I think we see that more and more uh, in, mm. in our public health training and there's been a lot of work to make sure that we're starting to really get those perspectives happening. Epidemiologists have driven a lot of that. But, yeah, just, just kind of bringing some of that set of thinking to the foreground when we're deep in clinical conversations, I think, makes a big difference. Yeah, and hopefully people are incorporating those perspectives all over the world currently. <laughs> Yeah, it would be great. Because they're <laughs> definitely needing a multidisciplinary approach at the moment. Um, yeah, right. With exactly. regards to... Oh, no, you're right, sorry. <laughs> with regards to that more applied side of um, anthropology, well, I guess, what do you think is the role or what, what should be the role for these kinds of theoretical and conceptual frameworks in, say, something like health research. And mm. I ask partly because I've spent a very huge amount of my life force over the last few months going down various theoretical 
rabbit holes trying to write my say methodology chapter and come and ended up with all these different sort of theories floating around because I presumed I had to have all of this stuff mm. um, I found out other PhD students don't even have a theoretical framework <laughs> in their PhD at all and I've asked my right. supervisor if I can just not do one but it's too late now <laughs> and, you're in too deep yeah. yeah and I was I was reading through some of your papers and I noticed that um, I, I can't remember which one it might be one of the Quad, quad bike months you refer to mm. the socio-ecological model yeah how to in, interpret this data but um there's also not you know you don't have you know paragraphs of the theoretical framework okay. upon what yeah. the paper was was based you know yeah. the epistemology we used by yeah, which to approach this problem yeah. and yeah. i wonder how you how you think about when and how you use those um mm. um more ab more abstract some would say abstract some would say fundamental aspects of research either in how you conduct it or in how you write it up yeah uh and look i think particularly the, the papers that i've had out around um, agricultural health and safety um and the quad bikes and stuff is written for a very specific set of audiences and their audiences in particular, <laughs> I remember having um, a discussion, quite a heated one, with uh, one of my co-authors on those papers, Richard Franklin, who is an amazing associate professor who's been studying health and safety for many, many, many years. And he was insistent that we write up um, results from a focus group, uh, one of the quad bike focus groups, by putting the quotes in a table. And this killed me. I was <laughs> at a point in my journey where tables were not acceptable to me at all, that if you're writing up someone's stories, that it should be an organic part of the conversation that flows through the results part of your paper. You should have the quotes inserted mm -hmm. in at, at critical moments so that people can make sense of the example that you're giving, right? And not sort of bust them up it. in a table, right? <laughs> so we had a very long, very heated conversation <laughs> about this. And uh, we used a table. Um, I, I didn't... <laughs> because this particular paper was being written for engineers, in particular, you know, and, and their way of seeing and understanding the world, I needed to communicate to them. It was more important that they could see it and not get bored with it and, and understand where I was headed. And for them, being able to see it captured in a nice, tight kind of way made it very explicit. Um, and it, it does work. It's just not my, it's not my flow, you know, <laughs> it's not yeah. what I like. Um, so, you know, I have gotten to be a bit more friendly with tables over the years. But it's, it's more that sense of, you know, that's kind of our work as anthropologists and the values that we bring to it are about being able to take health frameworks, take, um, you know, different philosophies, I think, and really unpack them a bit before we start. Um, so I do think that anthropology contributes to the design of some of these projects. To be honest, when I'm not fully in control of it, it doesn't get as much of a guernsey as it might if I were, right? Mm -hmm. um, so when I'm working in a health team, we've generally got a way of doing things that tends towards a fairly, um, yeah, straight up and down way of collecting data and these are the kinds of things that we want to explore. Um, but that background work, that kind of unpacking of concepts and, and ideas, we still do. Some of the papers that you might have had a look at um, are based on uh, 
reports that we've done where we actually were working very strongly on trying to understand what the facilitators and barriers to uh, implementing uh, health and safety initiatives are. And, um, uh, you know, the, the anthropology really came in handy there, <laughs> right? Trying to unpack some of these big ideas about, you know, what is a facilitator? What is a barrier? What do we mean by safety? What do we mean by risk? Um, how is that conceptualised? As a part of a form of implementation science? Yeah, I guess so. Or Because as I was reading, I thought, mm. oh, does this line up with that field of things, sort of a qualitative version of that, which I hadn't really... Um, imagined before yeah I guess it kind of does um, it's it's uh, I mean all of the stuff that we do you could collect from a survey right um, but you wouldn't get the depth um, so we tend to w away from them we do have some surveys uh, and like Delphi methods that we use and stuff like that in some of the work that I've, I've been on um, and use myself to create scales that are meaningful to people um you know so yeah i think it's kind of a qualitative way of dealing with that stuff um and what we're trying our big aim really for a lot of the research that you'll see written up with my name on it is to draw out those human experiences from from uh what can be mixed methods projects a lot of the ones that we've written up so far have been part of a bigger set of projects um and so, you know, we might write up a phase of it or a bit of it. Um, uh, I did some work with uh, a clinician, Jeremy Furick, uh, in, a few years ago now that was looking at, um, we looked at febrile convulsions, uh, paediatric febrile convulsions and um, parents' experiences of that moment and those moments of care, um, that kind of care journey stuff. And it was really fascinating. So I got to do the interview stuff, right? Um, and Jeremy was a lot more focused on the numbers and the presentations and, the, you know, the clinical data that you can draw out and really work with. Um, and we'd sat together and created the interview schedule and um, it was – that's where, you know, I could kind of say, okay, if we're going to ask people about this aspect of care, we probably need to also know about this aspect of their experiences before that or, you know – um, so that we could draw out the most um, detail that we that we we could get from people um, about these experiences, some of which are really quite harrowing stories. Um, you know, for parents caring for, for for tiny tiny kids, tiny babies, um, having these really frightening seizures. Um, we looked at bronchiolitis as well. So there was a couple of different bits and pieces going on in this study at the same time. But my whole uh, focus was on that that experience of, you know, the seizure or the bronchiolitis episodes, um, what that was like for the parents, how they found the care um, that they were given, um, whether they thought things like informed consent was a really important thing to be able to do in an emergency department. It was it had a really controversial kind of aspect to it when we're talking about the ethics of care and particularly emergency care. It was a very interesting study. Um, set of studies um, but yeah so so my stuff always kinds of um, comes in for that level of detail and and bringing the human back into what can be a very clinical experience or a very um, mechanical experience um, uh, of you know how do you use this vehicle when do you use this vehicle what was your experience of using that what do you think happened what went wrong what went right you know what do you know about the safety of these things it, it's 
um, it really is a marriage for me. In the applied work that I do, uh, my stuff is about, it's the conversations that you don't necessarily see written up. It's the, the analysis um, that, that comes through in discussions that kind of has a bit of that flavour and that I can bring to the team. Um, yeah, it's, but it does look like qualitative implementation research. You're kind of right about that. I hadn't really thought about it. <laughs> so do you think with studies, say, that, you, that have a qualitative element but you're writing it up for an uh, engineering audience, yep. <laughs> is it that you sort of know in your heart of hearts what the epistemology and ontology of this paper is and could tell could tell you if you wanted to know but that's not relevant here so we're not putting that in or is there a form of um what i i think i've read as just qualitative description that not to say this is what is occurring in your papers but oh, yeah. whether you think no. that whether that exists because yeah. I, I was reading that paper is a paper by uh, Sandalowski, it's a little bit old mm. now, but it's basically uh, talking about how people seek um, epistemological credibility by saying their work is phenomenological or <laughs> grounded theory or narrative study, <laughs> and it's more kind of uh, posturing rather than actually being those things. Yeah. So, do you think there's a place for yeah uh, research that doesn't, I guess, bother with all of that stuff, or is yeah, it just that? All research bothers with that stuff at some level. We just don't talk about it all the time. Yeah, um, that's actually a really good question. Um, you know, because for me, there, there are absolutely papers in my collection where it that doesn't go on. You know, we don't talk about it. Um, and, and we really do focus down on the fact that this is a qualitative study. It is a qualitative description of blah, right? Um, and I actually think that's quite valuable in and of itself because it declares the ways that we did it, right? Having said that, when we don't talk about the ways that we thought this through, <laughs> um, uh, I there's been a real trade-off, I think, for me over the years um, when I've been particularly writing for health or writing for other audiences that aren't anthropological um, in terms of that unpacking of the things that we bring to it. Yeah, we unpack the literature, yeah, we can talk about kind of the stats that have brought us to this problem or, or whatever, and you see that in a lot of my papers. Um, and then it becomes very much a, a, a kind of qualitative description of what we did, you know, what we found and that kind of stuff. If I was writing for an anthropology journal, I would absolutely have all of the epistemological background kind of stuff in there because it's the beauty. For me, that's where the beauty lies in terms of being able to show... There's a couple of things I think it does. I think it's not just beautiful because it explores those really important underlying concepts that have led us to this moment, but I think it's also about hanging out your bias, <laughs> just hanging it all out there and going, okay, so this is exactly what I was thinking when I was coming to this question and this is why I constructed it this way and this is how it ended up. Right? Um, and I think that's really important for an audience being able to read in on qualitative work to be able to understand your analysis at the end of it um, so that they can go, oh, okay, yeah, right, Chris, so you're about this. And that's where it was leading you. So, of course, that's why you asked these questions and not some other question. I do think it's really important. Um, but I know that there is a lesser value on some of that detail uh, in certain publication types. 
or publication spaces uh, than in others. Um, some are very focused on simply knowing the methods you use to get there, um, but not necessarily that underlying philosophy. Or that underlying philosophy gets caught up in the ways that you kind of write your background and write that introduction. Um, so it's, it may not always be an explicit, I'm a phenomenologist, I'm doing these things because, you know, I'm all about the lived experience. Um, sometimes that is just kind of caught up in the ways that we describe our background. Um, and that's been a really interesting lesson for me. Um, I was having that lesson while I was going through the PhD because I had a, an anthropology supervisor and a health services researcher as my supervisors. Amazing people. Um, and the, they never clashed. They never, <laughs> they never clashed, they never fought, which was really interesting to me. There was always a way through. But when I was writing for the health journals and my health service research mentor was the one that was helping me write those things, it had a different tone. And he would tell me the things that were important to that group and what they really wanted to know. And that if I started a different way, I might just turn them off um, because it was too dense or it was too detailed. Um, my thesis had all of it. <laughs> it's got all of that in it. And I think it's a, a, a really beautiful document because of that. Um, but it's not... I, I would definitely adapt it for a medical audience. You know, um, I don't think it makes it any less a work. I think it's about understanding that you're talking to someone else and that it's not just all about you and your discipline and, and the things that you find really valuable in terms of communicating a study, but that actually this is who you're talking to and you need to tailor that message to suit. Um, and that, yeah, if they want to know, they can read deeper or they can talk to you about it. They can come back and go, hey, Chris, where's all the you know epistemological stuff? Yeah, okay, well, it was this yeah. um, that underlies it. We generally always on those safety papers take a framework. You can see on a few of them there's the you know, socio-ecological framework we've got on one and there's um, you know, the health belief model on another one. You know, so there's always these models that we're playing around with. And they're really just shortcuts for a lot of the epistemologies that we're talking about. Yeah? They're kind of uh, cognitive shortcuts. Um, some of these frameworks, they come from these beautiful, amazing, you know, epistemological backgrounds themselves and have been described that way by the people that have originally kind of write them up. Um, so, you know, in those kinds of papers, we're leaning on that history and playing with it <laughs> at the same time, right. um, which I find really exciting. I think that's a great opportunity. Um, but it is a very different way of communicating your message. I agree. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that as the models you use mm. implying a lot of that Ooh. epistemological stuff so without having to detail all of it by using certain models to interpret your your data you've already signed on to these you know yeah so these bigger uh, ideas and I, these bigger ideas that are further back in the in the ancestry i suppose yeah that's right okay yeah. well i suppose we're getting close to the end of our time Cool. Um, it's flown by. You've made this very easy for me. <laughs> One thing I wanted to ask was whether you have, whether you would have any advice for, I guess, young anthropologists or people who are thinking about getting into, thinking about studying or working in anthropology, and 
maybe people who are already into it and maybe in uh, in the early part of their career um, any, any advice in general and what mm. what attitude people should be having to say things like the publication treadmill and things like that where do you think people should fo- should focus their energy because there's ways in which it's uh it's, go- it's going to be focused by going through the university system but yeah where do you think the value is how do people figure out how best to spend their how time to navigate in this that field yeah wow um yeah, look, I think for, for people who are studying anthropology and who are, you know, kind of moving into this space and moving into their careers, early careers, um, my biggest piece of advice is to be really comfortable with the idea that you may never see the word anthropologist written on your business card, right? Um, you can absolutely claim it. You will have plenty of people who will turn around and go, oh, don't call yourself that. You're not, no, don't call yourself that. You're a social scientist or you're this or that. I've had it from people who really mattered, <laughs> right? Um, and I went, yeah, that's cool and all, but I'm an anthropologist first, right? <laughs> that message absolutely got <laughs> As through, we've right? established. As we've established, right? That's where I am and um, it's what I'm about. So, um, you know, I, I think it is really important though uh, in a world that does evolve so quickly and particularly we've seen with employability issues for um, uh, anthropology graduates and, and other social scientists over the years, um, <laughs> You know, I, I don't think I've ever written anthropologist as my job description on a on a business card, for example. Um, I talk about the fact that I am one and I use any opportunity I can to say so um, uh, because it's important to me to keep that sense of identity. But I'm also happy to be known as lecturer, researcher, senior research officer, you know, all of those kinds of things as well um, because that doesn't impact on who I am at my core, and at my core I'm an anthropologist, right? So I think if this is what you're about, really hold on to that value um, and understand that it's it's fluid. You know, the things that we know about human beings because we study this discipline are really important um, and should undercut everything that we, that we kind of do. Um, in terms of the publication treadmill, I can't say that I've been particularly... Um, uh, I don't know. There's different measures of success on this, right? I'm really happy with the work that I've put out. Um, and I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind when, you, when you're going through these things. And, and you know, uh, the, the metrics that we use to measure success around this change, and they're adaptable, right? And as an anthropologist working in the STEM field, there's different kinds of uh, output expectations on me that impact on the ways that I write and how I communicate my messages. But it doesn't take away from the fact that I can bring that anthropological perspective to all of my work. Right? If I was working in an anthropology department, those pressures would be different again. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty... I'm kind of laid back about it in a way that I probably shouldn't be. Um, but but <laughs> I just think put out good work um, when you can put out good work. Um, because that's really the thing that's going to matter. I'm also a big fan <laughs> or where, where I have seen success, okay, um, on publication treadmills is in writing about the fundamentals. So the biggest paper I have, and, and it's getting old now, so I'm getting to a point where I've got to write something else again, <laughs> um, was the one that undercut or unpacked ideas about what cultural barriers are in healthcare, right? 
it's been my most successful paper in terms of citations and people using it and looking it up and all of that. Without doubt, over the time that it's been out, it's the most used. And it's, I think it's because it's about a fundamental idea that lots of people are trying to get their hands on and understand but need that opportunity of detail. Um, and there's been work that's built off it, it's been referenced, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I think that having those moments of clarity around the big fundamental human questions, which is what we love anyway, um, is where you see the most value in those treadmills. Right? And you can't do every paper like that. It's not all going to be like that. Um, but, yeah, I think some of that, retaining that sense of, you know, really pulling the anthropological value through those ideas, those big human issues, helps. And then, yeah, just putting out good work where you can. Um, you don't want to get lost in the quagmire of just stuff, right? Um, so, you know, I think that's where we can bring our distinctiveness to the front end, um, communicate that distinctiveness and beauty to other audiences in ways that are meaningful to them. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I don't know if I have any more advice than that. Try I think just, that's pretty good chill. advice. Yeah, everything's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's very welcome advice to a lot of early career (laughs) researchers. Because, yeah, Yeah. there is a lot of pressure and sense of time passing all the time. Yeah. And the variability of the the metrics then between fields, it's a real whirlwind sometimes. It really is. Um, And to close, um, it'd be good to know what are you most excited about for the future what work are you is there any work you're thinking about doing or I mean, you talked a little bit about things you've been thinking about but <laughs> is there any work you're or research you're hoping to do or would like to do that's getting you excited at the moment yeah look i'm kind of at that point in my career where i'm trying to reconfigure what it is i want to think about um and as you can see it's been quite a broad field of thinking um but uh you know, my the undercurrent remains. I'm, I'm really focused on being able to do things that are going to improve healthcare systems for people who struggle through those systems, you know, struggle to navigate them, struggle to use them the best uh, and who need them the most because I think that if we can make improvements in that, that kind of line of work, we're going to improve the health system for everybody. Um, so, you know, I've... I've um, been working with speech pathologists on transgender issues and access to care for speech pathology. I've been working with um, another group around linguistics in, in you know, health and well-being and clinical situations and working with people on you know, skin disease still, that's still kind of travelling through, and people's understandings of that and ways that they seek care. and Always uh, kind of moving towards seeing, by seeing these kinds of populations and working with them, I think we get the opportunity at seeing a unique perspective, right? It's like looking at the elephant and everybody's standing around different different parts of this elephant that is the healthcare system and everybody's got a different experience of it. And the more of those experiences we see and understand and give voice to, I think the better we have an opportunity to make this better, right? To, to actually get something that's working for the majority of people. Um, so, yeah, I think my work's going to just continue down that track of trying to unpack and explore these different perspectives. Um, that's what's coming to me. The universe is sending me this stuff and I'm loving it. Um, 
So yeah, yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm excited about the future. Um, I like the idea of robots, but that's a different story probably. Um, <laughs> um, of studying robots or just like oh, the idea of robots? Uh, well, both, yeah. In general. I'm, I'm pretty keen. In butler form. I'll do whatever, yeah. <laughs> oh, butler form robots. See, they're the ones that worry me the most. Um, you know, mm. I'm, I'm one of these people that says, please. Because when they turn, they're Google. already in your house. Yeah, right? Well, and they don't worry me as in cause me anxiety about them being with me. I worry about them, right? I worry about the moment when we reach this idea of, of actually creating sentience, right? And that we, mm-hmm. who's going who's gonna to take care of these robots? Who's going to take care of these things? Because they then become things that are real and have uh, feedback, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> in ways that are, it, it's, it's kind of human. Um, so is do it you think we'll have sentient robots? Oh, I don't know. Soon? I, 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 people are pretty clever. Um, so, yeah, yeah look, I, I, we're, we're within we're 10 scared. years. We're, yeah, right. I mean, we're a bit wary of it. The Google Assistant, um, you know, being able to talk over the phone. I still remember watching that video and being completely mind blown. And I was so excited. And I'm watching it next to someone who's just going, nope, that's just a frightening future that we don't need. Um, yeah. Because it's too human. It's too human to be able to go, um, and kind of have a moment of thought was too human. And I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of excited about that. But I think we do have to be really mindful of where we're going and the ethics of it, right? And that's why I'm loving where some of these other anthropologists are kind of moving, like Genevieve yeah. and Catherine. Because I think they're really thinking through those big fundamental human issues that come alongside this technological change. Yeah. I think we have an exciting future ahead of us. I don't want anyone left behind. I think the scarier, the, the even scarier option would be having, we could create sentience within some sort of artificial intelligence, but not realize we have. Yes. <laughs> so we could realize a oh. hundred years too late that wow. what we now class as sentience has already existed throughout that time. Amazing. So right. there's all, all sorts of. Yep. Science fiction concerns that are becoming more and more <laughs> salient. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love it. It's I fun think, to think yeah. about. Yeah. It's great stuff to dig into because it mm. it strikes at some really human things, right? The really human things about us, the things that we are most vulnerable on, the things that mm. we're most anxious about, they're the moments of beauty, I think, for, and particularly for anthropologists. Um, yeah. It's those think, big fundamentals. Mm. Coming back to like what we mean by human we're sort of learning more about what human means by creating things that once we create Uh, them uh, are very clearly not human even though we've tried all that uncanny valley stuff yes it's not human to just have a face it's got to be doing a particular thing and that's that's what counts as human so amazing it's so Mm. amazing i think it really does expose a lot of exactly that yeah um and our reactions to it um that's where you know you've hit it. You've hit the nerve or you've hit the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a, yeah, it's such an interesting world. I kind of think maybe user experience would have been a good thing for me. I don't know. See, that's a great cool yeah. option too. Yeah. It's exciting yeah. work. User experience work. Very cool. <laughs> Go for it. Just pivot. Hey, yeah. Just do Why a hard not? pivot. Yeah. <laughs> I'm all about the flex. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> well. Awesome. Just chill and it'll come to you if, you know, if it's meant to happen. That's right. That's how technology <laughs> works. 
Exactly. All right, Chris. Well, thank you very much for making the time today. Really appreciate it. No worries. Thank you. And um, yeah, we'll have we'll have you back on when uh, maybe to talk talk more about robots when they start to take over. Excellent. That sounds like a great plan. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Thank you. See ya.